0: what's happening at each other's churches, Um, we really believe that God has put us in this city um, as the bride of Christ to display Jesus. And we know that that's going to happen through our relationship to one another, um, encouraging each other and spurring one another on toward love and good deeds. So if this is your first time here, we often hear that it's really hard to kind of figure out who we are, what we are, what this is. Um, we really are just a gap. This, this lunch specifically is meant to be a gathering for leaders and pastors from all different parts of the city to encourage one another and get to know each other. So it really is a launching pad to deeper relationships. So if you um, are newer, get to know someone next to you, we encourage you as part of just a practice of being um, a part of your, your vocation as a pastor, as a leader, that you would practice at least once a month, maybe even more often, but at least once a month, reaching out to another pastor pastor or leader in your community that you don't know, and getting to know them. That really is how a lot of our relationships have grown over the years, is just reaching out across um, denomination lines and backgrounds and saying, hey, let me get to know you as another leader in this city and hear what God is doing in your church and in your life, and let that inform and help us learn from one another. So... Thank you guys for coming. Our lunches, we don't always have a a sponsor for our lunches, but about five or six times a year we'll have an outside organization that we really philosophically align with and really appreciate sponsor our surge lunch. So this month we have ProGrace here with us. And they started in Chicago, and they're a model for local churches to engage in the pro-life issue. um, And it's called ProGrace. And we're going to watch a couple-minute video, but we're really thankful for them today for buying us lunch. So I'm going to play the video and then give Angie a couple minutes just to tell you about who she is and what she's doing here in Phoenix. All right, while they're figuring that out, I'm going to have Angie just kind of come on up and just share for a couple minutes um, her heart and why she's here, and then hopefully, we'll be able to show the video. Hi, I'm
1: really honored to be here today. This is my second time in Phoenix, but already I've just been really amazed to see the Surge Network and how you all come together. I've been ministering in Chicago for 16 years, and I was just telling people I was Googling today to try and see if there are similar networks in Chicago, and I can't find anything. So I think what God is doing here is really unique and a model for the country. So I'm thrilled to be here. Um, we'll try to show the video in a minute. Mike will give me a. A clue when you are a signal when he's ready, but I will tell you a little bit about my journey. Can I get the slides, guys, for Maya? I did not write The Skeleton in God's Closet, I would have loved to because that's an awesome title, but I don't know if we have my slides. We can't do my slides, okay? So cool, we're just gonna go without the clicker. Um, I'll tell you my journey in this issue and see if you can relate it all. I really was not involved in the pro-life, pro-choice debate at all, ever. I kind of came up through Christian ministry and then had some jobs in the marketplace. And I took a position at a pregnancy center in Chicago thinking, this is cool. Who Who can argue with helping women? And I had no uh, preparation for the response of the community when I would go tell them what I was doing. I've never felt such a wave of skepticism and mistrust when I said I'm a Christian engaging in the issues of unplanned pregnancy and abortion. And that broke my heart that whether that's true or not, that's our reputation in the community, that we're kind of anti-woman, and that uh, fact that we didn't have a Christian witness in that area was really troublesome to me. Oh, they're not going to go anyway. Um, and I started wrestling with that. It created a lot of tension. The second piece in my journey that I wrestled with was we did some research with women uh, where they asked them why they had abortions or how they felt when they were single and weren't planning on being pregnant. And the answer so shocked me that it forever changed me because... Uh, far from being just something that you can say to a woman, hey, just don't do this, it's not the right choice. She was wrestling at a deep level, feeling like I have no other option. My life as I know it is over, my identity is shattered, and my choices are between abortion or overwhelming struggle as a mom, and I just can't do this. That broke my heart because it led us to our third question, which is, where would Jesus be in this whole debate? You've got one side focusing on the woman, one side focusing on the child, and in the middle is a woman with these very real needs. Where would Jesus be? How would he be addressing her? And the answer that we wrestled with that we came to are two theological truths that are center to pro-grace, and that is first, God's design of pregnancy, which hopefully you'll be able to see in the video in a minute, but basically that when God designed pregnancy, he intertwined two people. In such a way that he made it impossible for us to help one and bypass the other. And that's why our current political debate is never going to work. Because you can't come to an answer saying, I'm for the needs of the woman or I'm for the needs of the child. God's answer and his design is he wants his people to be actively helping both the woman and the child. And that when, he de- when we do that, he will come behind us and bring great transformation. The second theological truth for us is God's path for transformation, which is always his grace. It's always his grace that gives us a new identity and leads us to him and allows us to live a new life. But in this issue, unfortunately, in a lot of churches, without us knowing it, we have communicated judgment, and we've not shown a lot of grace. And so um, the passion that God put on our heart is really to see both of these things, Christians working for his design and Christians expressing his path, through the local church. That was the last piece on my journey. I'm from Chicago, and I've heard Bill Hybels say the local church is the hope of the world. And the Holy Spirit used that to convict me that that the local church is got to be the final place for women and children if they're going to thrive after an unplanned pregnancy. And then if we can have communities of women in churches all over our cities who are going back to college and they're coming into relationship with Christ and they're getting married they're thriving after the pregnancy that is what will actually change the story for women and that is what will turn the tide of abortion so we have launched actually as a new organization coming out of Chicago but we're going to be coming to Phoenix and other cities to equip Christians in your churches to come along this journey and have a new way to think and talk and act around the issue of abortion. So Danae will tell more. I hope you can join us. I'll give one last nod. Is there any way to watch the video? They're going to try and maybe...
2: Why did God create pregnancy? He could have chosen to bring life into the world any way he wanted. But his design is pregnancy. There's really nothing else like it, where the welfare of two people are so intertwined that it's impossible to help one while bypassing the other. But instead of respecting God's design, the political debate divides us into two camps. One focused on the needs of the woman, the other focused on the needs of the child. And somewhere in the middle is a woman and a child with real emotions and real needs. And if those needs go unmet, she often feels that her only choices are abortion or overwhelming struggle as a mom. At current rates, more than one in four women in America will have an abortion by age 40. And the rates aren't that different between those who call themselves Christians and those who do not. That means there are thousands of women in our churches who have or will face an unplanned pregnancy. This may sound unbelievable because you've rarely heard this from women at your church, but isn't that proof there's a problem? Because for many women, the church is one of the last places they would turn to for help. Maybe it's time for a new Christian response. That's why Pro Grace is creating a movement of believers who will take a grace approach, expressing God's heart for both the woman and the child. First, we engage Christians with this paradigm shifting message that a woman and child are intertwined and grace is the only way to help both. Then we equip them to build bridges so that women and children can thrive during and after an unplanned pregnancy. The pro-grace movement is unleashing grace into the abortion conversation, bringing healing, hope, and restoration. Won't you join us?
0: So the way, so Serge, we have a lot of churches within our um, network that are doing incredible things and not every issue has every church or every pastor's name on it. Um, And I know I've just, just by listening to the last several months of pastors who are just expressing exhaustion of like the weight of all the different justice issues that are out there and what, which one do you engage on and do you not? And so um, we know that different churches are doing really incredible and beautiful and good things. And, And the way that we're kind of going forward as a movement of churches within Surge to identify what are going to be maybe three or four projects that we really focus on, initiatives that we really kind of collectively focus on, is when the spirit seems to lay on three or more pastors and churches' hearts to own something and to come around it and form the vision for it and drive it then as a network we'll kind of say, okay, this is something that we're going to do as part of Surge. Not that every church needs to do it, but there seems to be at least three churches who are going to really press into this. So, um, you know, so several of the things that we are currently working on is a lending task force. We have several churches um, providing the leadership and model with a payday lending and different things happening there. That um, We've been doing gatherings related to racial reconciliation. And then abortion is the third thing that many pastors, like probably... 10 to 15 in the last year have just come to me and said, I want to engage more in this. I don't know how. So we started looking at a model that would really fit within our philosophy and DNA of search. So that's what, how we found Angie and Pro Grace. Um There's going to be a training in November. We'll let you know about it. Um, and if you have, if this is something particular for you or something that your church is already engaged in and you want to know more, you guys can talk to me. But I'm going to call up Jim and have him pray for Angie and for this um, movement and let Jim introduce Josh.
3: Well that was my uh that was my mom when she was 16 years old and she was encouraged by everyone to have an abortion. So I'm going to pray for this, but I'm going to pray for this with my mom's stories in mind. So Father, we just uh thank you for your deep love for <clears throat> your image bearers. These women who are created in your image, the 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 babies that are created in your image and how much that reflects your character, and so Lord, we pray that both would be treated with dignity. We thank you so much for uh, the 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 wisdom and the rich, uh, you know, Jesus centered Bible uh, biblical worldview that this vision is coming out of. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless it to be a blessing uh, that that many many people would and many families would encounter your grace and your kindness and your nearness through the various churches in our area. Lord, I just thank you for the the, the very awkward uh, church couple that lived across from my mom and extended hospitality to her and love for her. And we just know that our churches are filled with similarly awkward people who can love well. And so we pray that you would empower them by your spirit to love well, to extend hospitality and that you would give us wisdom, the, the particular churches in this room, wisdom, uh, that the ones who should engage it, God, would you be our good shepherd and guide us into it and help us to, um, to live in the already, not yet, with hope in you. And, uh, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you go ahead and give her a hand and thank her? All right. So I, I've said some of the most important things about Josh that need to be said as far as introduction goes. He's the cross between Dr. J, Malcolm Gladwell, and C.S. Lewis, had that person been raised in Portland. But seriously, this guy is someone that I've learned a ton from, that many people in this room have learned a ton from. He's written a couple books on light subjects like uh, Hell, Judgment, and Holy War, just like easy reading. Um, But today he's talking about Uh, the the content of his uh, newest book, which is uh, The Pursuing God and really talking about union with Christ and the God who pursues us. And I'm not going to say any more stuff because you're going to say all the rest of the stuff. So come on up, man.
4: Thank you so much, Jim. Wow, that's a lot. Uh, It was good to be here. Man, I was here, I think, a year and a half, two years ago, and just love uh, hearing the stories and seeing what God is doing in and through this network of churches. I love the local church and just seeing what God is doing uh, through you guys. So honored to be here. All right, so I had a a vision years ago. I once had this vision, and it was of this artist making this painting. And so if you can imagine with me kind of this uh, large gold embroidered frame and this blank canvas, and the artist begins kind of painting and splashing colors, and eventually the momentum and the intensity builds until it's like Jackson Pollock, and he's just throwing these wild colors on and pouring himself into this painting with passion. And eventually when it's finished, the artist kind of steps back from it and observes and looks as if to say... And this is really good, right? Only next, something strange happened. There was this kind of small mark of like corruption, this kind of dark decay that erupts in the center of the painting. And gradually, like the decay began to spread like cracks and fissures throughout the painting. It was almost as if like when your car gets that kind of crack in the windshield and it starts small at a point, but it begins to crack and spread, threatening the glass as a whole. And similarly, this painting was almost like being threatened with eventual destruction and unraveling. And I was watching it kind of going, oh man, how is the artist going to respond? What's he going to do to deal with this masterpiece being threatened with destruction? And the artist did the craziest thing I never would have imagined or expected. He actually lifts up his leg and steps into the painting, the artist into the painting. And he steps in in such a way that his heart is over the very kind of heart of darkness, the the center of the corruption and decay at the the center of this painting. And gradually the kind of cracks and fissures begin to come back at him and attack him. And he sort of takes the blows and absorbs the destruction in his painting until eventually it's kind of like a until he absorbs it all. And when he's done, he stands at the center of his painting restored. And I'm kind of like, okay, it's done now. You can kind of step back out, but he doesn't. He stays in the center in the painting. And I say this, I think this is a metaphor for the gospel. When I saw this, I kind of go, man, this is a picture of who Christ is and what he has done, that in the beginning, God the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit, that through Christ, all things were created. Jesus is the one through whom creation has come. Jesus is like the grand artist who has brought creation into existence in all its diversity and vast array but sin, uh, like this kind of small spark, like it starts in creation and threatens to unravel God's good world as a whole. And so in Christ's life, we see his incarnation is like this picture of the artist stepping in and uniting his life with the very fabric of his painting. And in Christ's crucifixion, we see him absorbing the death and destruction and decay uh, upon himself that God is taking on our destruction in Christ in order to ultimately reconcile and restore and make whole the good world that he has made. And in his resurrection, Jesus doesn't kind of step back out of his body, so to speak, out of his uh, humanity, but Jesus retains uh, his now resurrected and glorified body as the first fruits of the new creation of God's world made whole. I show this story as sort of a, a template for today. One of the things I want to talk about is the life of Christ and how Jesus' life, we want to look at how it's modeled on the story of Israel. I want to kind of look at how the story of Israel frames our understanding of who Christ is and what he is doing in a way that can help make sense of some tough topics that can come up in theology. I think when we put it into the context of Israel's story, it can help us deal with some of the challenges to the faith today. And often when I'm talking about, you know, on a popular level, the book's a little more written in a popular level uh, for just, you know, any everyday followers of Jesus, but since we're kind of a room of pastors and theologians, I want to give you a little more kind of the theological architecture of the book and some stuff for us to uh, dialogue and chew on after in the Q&A. All right, so big picture. Uh, so as Jesus steps in, we see this picture of God in the painting, and one of the questions I want to ask in light of that is, let's see this will come up here. Is that rolling? Can we go to the first slide? There we go. It's can God get dirty? What I mean by that is, you know, I think often we have this impression that, man, when we mess up or we make mistakes or things get messy, God kind of backs away. And so for a lot of folks, it's this picture that God's kind of lost out in the universe somewhere and we need to go find him. So we need to follow any trail of breadcrumbs we can to step out and see if we can discover God or find him or figure him out. But the premise of the gospel, I would suggest, is that it works in the opposite direction. It's not a story of us going out to find God, but of God coming to find us. And the question of the gospel is not, have we been good enough, worked hard enough, tried hard enough to encounter God? It's the question of, do we want to be found? Do we actually want our lives to be laid bare vulnerably before his story? And so as we ask, can God get dirty? Uh, As as the artist steps into his painting, uh, I I think uh, it depends what we mean. First off, we mean physically dirty. So yeah, like God does get physically dirty in Christ, right? He takes our dirt and our flesh and our bone. He takes our humanity to himself in Christ. He's not afraid of it. He created it. He's for it. And he's coming to redeem it. But if we ask, can he get spiritually dirty? As God engages with us in our mess, can we kind of taint him or mess him up? Or could, another way of putting this historically would be, could Jesus have sinned? Like, is it possible that Jesus could have gotten spiritually dirty or tainted by our mess? Could he have sinned? I think a good place for looking at this is the wilderness temptation. As Jesus goes in Luke, uh, Gospel of Luke, we see him going into the wilderness. And uh, we read, it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I always love that line, like, after fasting 40 days, he was hungry. I'm like, no duh, right? That's sort of like, after he was swimming for an hour, he was wet. I you're kind of stating the obvious. But I think think the point or the the intention that Luke wants to draw out here is, is that Jesus is feeling like the full freighted force of our frailty, our humanity, our flesh, right? Like Jesus is experiencing the full brunt of temptation and our corrupted condition. And so Jesus is hungry. And you'll notice something else interesting here uh, that it, it, we, there's this period of 40 40 days, 40 nights in the wilderness. The Spirit leading Jesus 40 days, 40 nights in the wilderness. And does that ring any bells? You know, if we think Old Testament, man, can you think of any stories where the, the people of God led 40, uh, a period of 40 in the wilderness? And Yeah, we go back. It's Israel in the wilderness, her story and experience, right? Um, where Israel 40 years in the wilderness. And it says that God brought Israel, led her by his spirit, and Deuteronomy brought her into the wilderness to test her and see what was in her heart. And similarly here, I would suggest Jesus, like Israel, is being led into the wilderness, and we're going to see in this testing. It's going to kind of pull back the ribcage and show us what is in Jesus's heart. Mm-hmm. And often when I've heard this passage preached on, it's it been approached as kind of a, all right, the the point of this passage is how we can beat temptation. Jesus Beats temptation so he can show us how to, too, right? It's sort of, all right, Jesus quotes scripture in response to his temptations, so we should quote scripture, too. And I'm not saying that's bad. I think, you know, quoting scripture is good, but I think there's something much deeper going on here that Luke wants us to take note of. Jesus is reliving Israel's story, only he's succeeding where she failed. So it's interesting, every time Jesus is tempted, he responds, yes, by quoting scripture, but if we look at what scriptures he's quoting, he's quoting from Israel's experience in the wilderness, and more so, he's quoting from an experience in the wilderness where Israel failed an important test. And so we got the first temptation. Satan says, uh, you know, turn these stones to bread, and Jesus responds, man shall not live by bread alone. And this comes from the scenario of manna in the wilderness where Israel's just out and, uh, man, God's abandoned us. We're hungry. It must mean that God's forsaken us. And, and, uh, and, and she's complaining, man, we should have just died in Egypt. And God's like, I'm for you. Your, your, your trust was broken so quickly and God provides manna in the wilderness. Satan's second temptation to Jesus is, uh, you know, jump off this rock. Like kind of, you know, throw yourself from the temple cliff. And if God, God said in the Psalms, like he won't let you, you know, he, he won't, his angels will come and protect you. Basically, you won't get hurt. Kind of this thing, demonstrate God's power, force his hand, show everyone that God's on your side. And when Jesus responds, he responds from another story about a rock in the Old Testament when Israel betrayed with water. Where it was, where Israel's thirsty now in the desert, and she's saying, um, "Man, she's saying, God, you've abandoned us again. Like things have just gone wrong, and now, now she's worried that God has left the building." And Jesus quotes um, quotes from here, and and says, "You know, thou shalt not put the Lord your God to the test." These were Moses' words to Israel when she failed. And then the third temptation, Satan says, "Bow down to me," and Jesus responds, "You know that." We are to worship the Lord our God and serve him only. And here he's quoting Moses uh, from a period where the context is how Israel has bowed down to the golden calf and all these other idols and gods that she's just gotten out of Egypt and she's already turning away from God at every first step. So I suggest to you that there's something more going on here than just Jesus showing us how to beat temptation. Jesus is actually living Israel's story and he's succeeding where she failed. Not only that, he's succeeding not only where Israel failed, he's also succeeding where Adam failed because the resonances here are drawing from the Garden of Eden too because Adam and Eve were tempted with food, right? They were tempted with a twisting of God's words and they were tempted to bow down to the serpent rather than God. And Adam and Eve failed all three those tests as well. Jesus is succeeding where Adam failed, and Jesus is succeeding where we fail, because we are so quick to turn from God at the first sign of trouble. We are so quick to break faith with God. So the point of this story, I believe, is not um, Jesus did it, you can do it too. The point is we don't do it, so Jesus did it for you, right? Like the point is not, uh, Jesus is not like teaching a beating temptation 101 seminar, right? He's saving the world, like he's living Israel's story, Adam's story, and our story redemptively, succeeding where we failed in order to reconcile us to God. So the question can arise here going, okay, well, what, um, what is, you know, man, if Jesus, could Jesus have sinned? Like, could he in the wilderness? Could he have fallen prey to any of those three temptations? Could Jesus have sinned? And on the one hand, I think many of us are kind of quick to go like, no, of course not. He's Jesus. He's God. He wouldn't have sinned. But if we say that, we've got to kind of grapple with that a bit because, man, what if, if we're saying that, does it mean that Jesus was forced to obey from outside himself? Was there some kind of fate or something coercing him to obey? And historically, the way the church has understood this has been to say, it kind of all depends on what we mean by could have. Now, if we mean from the outside in, Did Jesus truly have the opportunity presented to him to sin? And the answer is yes, of course. Like He fully felt, again, kind of the full weight of our humanity and our temptation and corruption. And from the outside in, it was a live option. Nothing outside of him was forcing him to obey. But if we mean from the inside out, in terms of Jesus' affections, his desire, who he is in his heart, Jesus would not have sinned. Because of his impeccable love for the Father, and his love for humanity that has prompted him to live our story redemptively. So Jesus could have he had the opportunity, but he would not have because of his impeccable love, because of who Christ is and i think some folks could say well man is is that really fair then if if jesus can't sin that sounds kind of unfair because man to we to err is human we all make mistakes we all fail at times you know isn't a part of being human kind of making mistakes and all uh, but i think part of it, it misunderstands the nature of what sin is sin doesn't make us more human it makes us less Like, sin attacks and degrades our humanity. It wants to unravel the wholeness that we were created for. And so as Jesus refuses to sin, you know, I think some folks say, man, well, if he's unable to sin, he's kind of like that athlete using steroids, right? He's got an unfair advantage, sort of a superhuman advantage. Of course he's going to hit it out of the park. We see, man, again, sin makes us less human, not more. Jesus is less like an athlete using steroids, and he's more like an athlete who never ate Twinkies, Right? Like, he's less—it's not that he has a superhuman advantage he's using to help him win. It's that he refuses to participate in the inhumanity that we all participate in, right? Like, Jesus' victory is accomplished in his perfect humanity that Jesus is true humanity. He shows us and is showing us what it means to be truly human. All right, well, we're we're, we're starting to see here that as he does this, as Jesus succeeds in the wilderness— he then inaugurates his ministry. And it's it's kind of like he, 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 he uh, again, this picture where he is reliving Israel's story. So just before this, Jesus just got baptized, right? And so he's baptized in the river, just like Israel was baptized coming out of Egypt. God parts the Red Seas and baptized Israel coming out of the water. So Jesus comes out of the waters like Israel did, and he's led into the wilderness like Israel was. And he succeeds in this part of Israel's story. And then after this wilderness temptation, we see he launches into his ministry and the kingdom of God is unleashed through him, right? Like we see in Christ that God in Christ is breaking into his world and the lame are healed, the the, the sick are healed, the demons are cast out, like the blind can see, the lame can walk. And it's almost like everywhere Christ goes, uh, patches of grass are kind of growing up in the wilderness, right? It's almost like uh, that painting is getting restored and the fractures and the corruption is getting washed away. Jesus is restoring his world. The artist is setting his painting back together again. And the irony is, this is what Israel was created for in her story, right? Like she was to be the agent that unleashed God's kingdom in the world. If we think of uh, Israel's kingdom years, she was called to live faithfully before God. And through that, there were going to be a kingdom of priests where they would mediate God's reconciling presence, breaking forth into the world and bringing healing to the nations and the light of God into the darkness of the world. But Israel continually rebelled and, and ran from that calling. And this is also what Adam and Eve were created for, right? Let them rule the earth. They were called to be stewards and agents of God's kingship, breaking in into all creation, stewarding and setting things right, making things whole. But Adam and Eve, like Israel, also failed at that. And similarly, like us, that's what we've been created for. Our calling has been to be agents of God's kingdom, those who unleash God's kingdom reign into his creation as agents and stewards of him. But like Israel, like Adam and Eve, we failed at that. And Jesus is succeeding where we failed. And in so doing, he is unleashing the unbreaking love of God. Into the world. Well, <clears throat> Jesus pours out the love of God to fill the world with it. And uh, I think, why is he doing this? What is the uh, reason or motivation? Well, in the early church, they had a, um, a word for this. It was kind of a fancy Latin word, recapitulation. Uh, but uh, kind of weird abstract word, but let's unpack what that means. Uh, so recapitulation essentially means the new captain right? You know that? Where uh, the word uh, re is for like new and uh, capito or capitulation comes from capito, uh, which was like the captain. It's the same word we get the R word captain from or head. And the idea here is that Jesus, in living uh, the life that Israel and Adam and us, that we were intended to live, Jesus is being established as the new head of humanity, as the new captain of creation, the God in Christ is reconciling the world and setting things right for him. I just had to chuckle because a Reconciled World organization has a few staff here, so, which I love and I'm a part of. But yeah, so reconciling the world and setting things right in and through Christ. And so Jesus is this new captain of creation. And, uh, I, and so if you think about this, like again, this imagery of creation as being like a ship, there's sort of this picture where Adam was first set in charge of the ship, and Adam was supposed to you know, uh, run creation rightly again, to be an agent of God's kingdom. But when we sinned and rebelled, it's kind of like Adam set the ship into the rocks and just started, our sin kind of keeps cr- ramming the creation, wanting to unravel it back into the abyss from which it came. And so God's like, okay, well, I'm going to redemptively now establish Israel as a people, and they're going to fulfill Adam's calling, right? In the midst of the nations, they're going to set the ship aright again. But Israel continues to uh, rebel and and, and turn away, and they keep ramming the ship into the rocks too. And so I believe ultimately that throughout the biblical story, throughout history, God is pursuing his creation, and it comes to a climax in Christ where God says, okay, I'm going to get the job done myself, right? And God steps into creation in Christ, that in Christ, God has come. He's establishing Jesus as the new head of humanity, the captain of creation. And his goal is to right the ship, to restore the painting, to establish his kingdom in the world. And so we see this in, uh, in Jesus. And, and I think there's this picture, to go back to our original question, can we get Jesus dirty? We see this picture where we can't really, we can't get Jesus dirty He can only make us clean. So I love story in Mark 5 where there is a woman who's been hemorrhaging for 12 years, kind of bleeding out. And this meant she would have been unclean in the day, both uh, in terms of ceremonially, as well as she probably, you know, people, there'd be a concern for public hygiene and health and maybe getting, if it's an infection or is it contagious, if people were wondering about that. And so there's a sense that she's been ostracized and alienated and is seen as dirty, as unclean, as outside. But when she hears of Christ and she comes uh, breaking through the crowds and trying to reach out and get to him and touch him. And, uh, and you know, I love the scene where Jesus has got people just pressing in, crowded around, all around him, and this one breaks, breaks through and touches him. And Jesus is like, dude, who touched me? Right? And his disciples, I think, are like, dude, everyone is touching you. Right? There's a sense of everyone is crowded around him. But Jesus goes, no, this was different. This was the touch of faith, right? reaching out. And as he turns, and she kind of cowers back, because I think everyone around her has just realized that she's been pressing in on them, and they all realize they're going to need to go home and take a shower, right, and do the ceremonial washing and cleansing stuff. But what's revealed is, and especially for the rabbi, the one, right, but she doesn't transfer her impurity to him. He transfers his purity to her, right? She doesn't bring her, she can't taint him with her uncleanness. He Passes her, his cleanness to her. You can't get Jesus dirty, right? Like he can only make you clean. And so I would suggest as we look at Jesus' life through this period of Israel's story, where Israel's story, uh, you know, you've got her, her creation, her early years, or the Exodus out of Egypt, you've got the wilderness years of Israel's story. And then Israel comes out of the wilderness and enters her kingdom years in the land. And we get to the end of Israel's kingdom years, where that fades, you then enter into the final stage of Israel's story, which is exile and even metaphorical death, right? The death of the nation under the Gentile powers. And I would suggest this season of Israel's story and exile and death can help frame what we understand is happening at the cross, even in some kind of controversial topics and areas today. As the question becomes, man, yeah, we see in Christ that God is willing to come after us, but how far is God willing to go? And at the cross, we see that God is willing to go all the way, that in Christ, Jesus is willing to go the full extent to reconcile us, throw us over his shoulders, and bring us home. So at the cross, Jesus bears our exile and death. He bears our punishment for sin. And I found many today struggle with the language of punishment at times. You know, it can sound kind of harsh or vindictive. There is a popular caricature today that would say that the cross is like uh, divine child abuse. Like, isn't that this picture of like the father beating the snot out of his son? And how can that be a good and loving God? And I think that's a, a gross distortion uh, or caricature of, of historic theology, but I, I think also it can help us to understand what's going on here again when we look in the context of Israel's story. The so first question I think we have to ask, if we talk about Jesus bearing our punishment or our penalty, is to ask, uh, what is the penalty? Right? Penalty in soccer is different from penalty in a game of bingo or something, Right? So we kind of ask, like, what's the game we're playing here, and what is the penalty or punishment or consequence of sin? And uh, in the caricature, I think there's this picture where the penalty is like the father's punching Jesus in the face or something to that effect, right? But when we look in the biblical story, we see that the penalty is exile and death, right? The penalty in Israel's story, in Adam's story, in our story. Is exile and death. So let's take a look at each of these first. So exile, we see the uh, punishment of exile where Adam and Eve rebel, and there's a sense implicit in their rebellion is they want, almost a weird way that they want exile, right? They want distance from God. They want to be like God rather than with God. And there's a rupturing of the communion and relationship with God they were intended for. And God calls that out and banishes them from Eden, and it's not seen so much as like this vindictive thing, uh, as even for their own protection, where God goes lest they eat of the tree of life and basically be stuck this way forever. So God banishes them to preserve them and set His redemptive plan in motion. Uh, but the consequence, the punishment uh, for sin, is it, it, it's an appropriate one, right? It's like we want distance from God, and God goes the punishment for wanting distance from me is distance from me, right? And you're gonna get what you want, and it's. Not going to be pretty, right? And the reality is uh, that this was the punishment in Israel story, too, that God throughout uh, Israel saw Adam's story not as just kind of Adam and Eve, not as just kind of this thing that happened long ago, but they saw it as like the archetype for the human story. And it was theirs as well where God calls them in the kingdom kind of tend this garden of the promised land and to live and dwell with him and for them to walk together and be together. And as Israel repeatedly leaves God and worships these other idols and rejects God and all, there's a sense that she is like Adam and Eve uh, eating from this tree of knowledge of good and evil. She's, she's pursuing autonomy and independence and distance from God. And ultimately, God is patient, God pursues, God is long-suffering, but God eventually hands her over the distance that she craves, and she receives God's punishment, the divine punishment, is she is banished from the land, like Adam and Eve long ago, into exile. And the reality is that exile leads to death. Uh, that the reality is, I mean, if we want distance from the light, it sets us on an inherent trajectory towards darkness. If we want to remove ourselves from the presence of, ultimate presence of life, it's to set ourselves on a trajectory towards death. To reject the God who is the source and being the ground of all existence, life, light, and love, is to move on an inherent trajectory towards darkness, destruction, and death. And so we see this in the story that through Adam, death has come to all, that through our rebellion, uh, that, that we live in a world that has been fractured. We live in a painting where the fractures and fissures have spread throughout creation and threaten to tear the whole thing down. And so I would submit to you that Jesus on the cross is recapitulating Israel's exile. right? In his rejection outside the city, He is bearing her rejection and her banishment outside the city. In his crucifixion, as he uh, takes the full weight of, of her destruction upon him and descends into the grave, he is bearing Israel's death, Adam's death, our death, that God is taking it upon himself in Christ in order to exhaust its power, in order to heal us and make us whole. And why does Jesus need to do this? Why does Jesus need to do this? Well, uh, the early church again had a saying that the uh, the unassumed is the unhealed, and what they meant by this was kind of going if if ultimately the problem is not just our behavior, it runs much deeper. The problem is we are created for union with God, right? We we're created for life and communion with God, and if the root of the problem is actually our distance from God, then whatever is not brought into union of God remains distant and unhealed. And so as Jesus steps into our world, if Jesus took on uh, a soul, let's say a human soul, but had no body, there is a sense that like his healing could reach to our soul, but it wouldn't wouldn't be able to reach to our body because our body would still be in distance from union with him. Or if Jesus had a soul and a body, but it was just kind of perfect, he never felt temptation or the corruption of our condition. Then there's a sense that uh, our, our condition, that we'd still kind of be looking at Jesus from a distance, so to speak, right? But we read in Hebrews that we have a high priest who has been tempted in every way just as we are. yet was without sin. That Jesus assumes the full weight of our condition, not only temptation, but even to the point of suffering and death, in order to bind himself in union with our condition and to bring us home, right? to reconcile us. To raise us from the grave back into union and life with God. At the cross, I believe the Father is binding Jesus the Son in union with humanity. And uh, there's, you know, one of the things I think on a theological level I think has happened is historically the church has not seen the cross as the split between the Godhead, not as a split between the Father against the Son. Historically, the church has seen the cross as a triune act where the Father through the Son in the Spirit, is taking on our condition in order to heal it. Right? Uh, and they have seen if there's any split throughout church history, they saw it as a split between Jesus' divinity and his humanity. right? Like where... Um, it's really only been in like recent times where theology has kind of gotten a prominent trajectory, going, man, it's the, there's, the cross is almost this rupture within the Godhead, and Father and Son are being split apart. It's not the way the church has historically understood it. There's a sense that Jesus, in his divinity, is entering into our distance, but in his humanity, he's bearing our distance. Like one of the ways I like to say this in the book is that Jesus is bearing our distance from the presence of the Father, like in his humanity, yet simultaneously, at the same time, he's bearing the presence of the Father into our distance and his divinity, That's right? Like Jesus bears our distance from the presence of the Father upon himself and his humanity, and simultaneously he is bearing the presence of the Father into our distance and His divinity. The Father dwells in the Son and works through the Son for his glory. God is present in Christ, reconciling the world with the cross. Uh, all right, how are we doing on time? Okay, so a little bit. So uh, the last question maybe here to ask is, is substitution fair, <laughs> right? <laughs> I love bacon, and if I show up for breakfast and someone substituted it with, uh, you know, this, this alternative, I'm going to be a little bit bummed. Like, dude, that is not fair. I, I signed up for this. I ordered this. How come I'm getting this, right? It's similarly, for a lot of folks with the cross, you know, the, uh, historically this idea that Christ was substituted in our place, that, that can sound like, man, is that fair? Like, no judge today would ever do that, right? Like, you've got a judge in a courtroom, and this person, let's say, is guilty of rape and murder, and someone else who's innocent stands up and says, hey, I'll take the blame, I'll, I'll take the punishment, put it on me instead, we just kind of revolt from that and go, dude, that's not Fair? Like, like, what does that accomplish? That doesn't, you know, address the wrong they've committed. It doesn't keep the, uh, you know, it doesn't protect society by keeping the, uh, this person that we might now consider a danger contained. So what, what good does that do? One problem with that analogy, I think, is it, it tends to be, it, it can become a little individualistic if we don't frame it properly. And so historically, the idea uh, of substitution was really bound up with this idea of corporate identity. And what I mean by that, corporate identity, when we hear the word corporate today, I think we think of like Walmart and Starbucks and McDonald's, you know, like kind of big uh, multinational economic corporations, that kind of thing, right? But historically, the idea ran much deeper. It comes from the root word corporal, which means of the body. And so the idea was that humanity or a nation or a family or society comprises like a social body, that our lives are intertwined with one another. Kind of like that video we saw where the mother and the child, their their lives are intertwined and extending that to go, our families, our lives are intertwined and nations even. And so there's a sense of even the human social body God has created for communion in, with and through one another. And our lives are intertwined like a body. And the head of the body would be that which kind of directs and determines which way does the social body go. So Caesar would be like the head of the Roman Empire. He's the one who kind of directs which way the Roman social empire, the, the Roman Empire, the body goes. And as Jesus is becoming established as the new head of humanity, he takes on the corporate weight. He takes on the weight of his body, right? the body of his people. Jesus takes on the weight of Israel's destruction, of Adam's destruction, and of our destruction, the weight of sin upon the human race. And so one of the ways I like to think about this, you know, that this is why he can bear our punishment is because he is our new corporate head. He is the new head of the human social body. One of the ways I like to think of this is Jesus is a Wall Street CEO, and uh, here's what I mean by that. If we think about the housing crisis that took place in America, right, where, um, man, just tanked the international economy. And in that context, Bank of America, let's say as one example, was found to owe $17 billion, right? And so uh, th- this corporate body of uh, Bank of America owed $17 billion. And what if Bank of America were to just go, well, dude, that was under the old CEO? We fired him. We hired this new guy. It's all good. You know, like... Like it's all good. Like the dead is gone. We that was under the old. You can't hold the new guy accountable for what the old guy did or what happened under his leadership, right? Like no, we go. That's that's ridiculous. You like like there would never be any corporate responsibility, right? Like BP's oil spill, they would just hire a new CEO rather than cleaning it up, right? There's the sense that uh, that he steps in to a position. Jesus steps into a position just like that CEO would of having to bear the weight and responsibility and leadership for the weight and debt of the, the, the corporate body. You can't just replace the CEO with the new one and think the debt has gone away. <clears throat> and I think this is one of the reasons why the courtroom analogy can become, if we don't frame it right, it can, it can come off a bit individualistic, right? But in this uh, in the historic understanding, that Jesus bears the weight of his people his body, and he is bound because he has bound himself in union with them. So I suggest that it's not so much in this light that Jesus is uh, being punished instead of humanity as it is that humanity is being punished in Jesus, that Jesus is bearing the full weight of our alienation and destruction and our distance from the Father in his humanity. And someday we'd just go, well, man, why can't God just forgive? Just live and let live like it was in the past. And, and I get that, and, but I was just, that is what is happening at the cross that God is just forgiving, He is justly forgiving. Because uh, Tim Keller uses the analogy of like, you know, if someone comes to your house and, you know, they, you, while you're sleeping that night, you wake up the next morning, you find your neighbor came home wasted, drunk, and kind of smashed through your fence and tore out a few of your arborvitaes or your trees, you know, and, and you come out and like, oh my gosh, my yard's a disaster. But you come over to your neighbor and after he kind of sobers up and wakes up and you're like, dude, it's all right, I forgive you, right? You've forgiven him, but it hasn't removed the destruction that he caused, right? Like there's still a cost. And the question is, when you forgive someone, it doesn't remove the cost. It just says that you're going to take on responsibility for paying it yourself. So when you forgive the guy who crashed through your fence, it doesn't mean the fence is suddenly miraculously healed. It means you're taking on the cost of repairing the fence and fixing your yard itself. If we think of the bigger social analogy with the Bank of America too, we actually did forgive the debt, right? Like as a society, the government forgave the big banks, all the debt and everything. Um, But it doesn't mean the cost went away. Like the economy was still left in shambles and it was the American people, it was us left footing the bill, right? And rightly, there was a lot of anger of going, man, people walking away with these massive bonuses and whatever. Uh, So forgiving doesn't mean the debt goes away. It just means that those forgiving take on the cost. And similarly, at the cross, God is justly forgiving. He is forgiving us, humanity, by taking the weight and the debt and the burden of our destruction and our corruption and our rebellion upon himself in the vicarious humanity of Christ in order to reconcile and make us whole. So, the last kind of reflection here would be I believe the cross is not only a crucifixion, but it is also a decapitation. Can I go to the next slide? Working. Uh, where, you know, yes, Jesus is crucified, but from another angle, too, the cross is also a decapitation. That at the cross, Israel is like a mob murdering the mayor, Rome is like uh, the empire of Adam chopping off its own head, right? We as humanity, as we crucify Christ, we are like chopping off our own head. We are taking out the head of humanity, the new captain of creation. The cross is us as humanity decapitating our redemptive head. And yet, simultaneously from another angle, from the human angle, we're decapitating ourselves, right? We're decapitating the human race. But from another angle, the cross is a recapitation, that at the same time that we're doing that, it is also at the cross that the Father is most intimately binding us in union with the Son. That the Father is binding us in union with the Son, that he is bound in union with us in our exile and our death in order to heal us and restore us and raise us and make us whole. So at the very time that we are decapitating the human race, God is most profoundly Recapitating, binding us in union with our redemptive head who joins us in our death in order to raise us from the grave. That both humanity and God are involved in the event, but from two very different angles. Uh, If we think of a mugger and a physician, uh, final slide, the next one, a mugger and a physician, uh, both a mugger and a physician can cut me Right? And they can cut me in the same way or even in the same place, but have two very different purposes. So at the cross, humanity is involved in this decapitation, but God is involved in this recapitation. They are both involved, but with two very different motives. We are the muggers chopping off our own head, and God is the physician binding us in union with him to heal us and make us whole. We see in all this that ultimately in Christ, God is, uh, Jesus is fulfilling Israel's story. He's, he gives us kind of this narrative framework to understand what his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection are accomplishing. And we see ultimately that in this story, the final slide here, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Thanks. Let's
3: go, let's go ahead and open up for some uh, questions. I'll run the mic to you so that we can get it recorded, and then you do the answering. Who's got a question? Ricardo sighed as an indication that he's got a question. (laughs) (laughs) For the record, for the recording, Ricardo said it was dope. (laughs) (laughs) uh, (laughs) Explain dope. (laughs) (laughs) All right, (laughs) questions?
4: you're that clear or that ambiguous no, <laughs> I that don't know good. what that you just said okay Gonzo. <laughs> no that was really clear it was really helpful you talked about uh, that we focus more on the I guess the disruption with the cross the disruption between the father and the son is I guess contemporary where we focused more on mm-hmm. that which that's different than historically mm-hmm. why why is that um, I know you've thought you've studied a lot historically and, and thought about yeah. that but why? Why do we? I think a lot of us are probably finding ourselves in that situation or thinking that way. That that's more where we focus as we're preaching or teaching or whatever. Why is why is that? Where did that change happen? If that's not historically where it's traditionally been? Definitely. So as far as I can find, an early church, medieval church, Augustine, Aquinas, a lot of the patristics and all, there is just this uh, really nuanced emphasis on uh, you know between the Son's divinity and humanity at the cross. You know, and as far as I can tell, you know. I may not be the most... To, me, but from what I can tell, I, I think Moltmann, Jürgen Moltmann, back with uh, the crucified God, was sort of a landmark work where he really uh, kind of posits the cross as this disruption between the Father and the Son, that it's actually a, uh, his, his, a lot of his aim and his purpose uh, in the book was to show how God has so fully entered into our suffering condition with us. Uh, but I, I think a reason uh, for that, you know, in wanting to do that, he wants to say that God has actually brought suffering into the very Godhead by allowing it to disrupt their life as father and son as sort of a, a mode of um, like empathy or fully entering our condition, uh, but that's a very new move kind of as far as historical theology would go, and I think picking up from Moltmann, who uh, did have a lot of influence like it, it kind of um, picked up steam from there and and now it seems almost commonplace, at least on a popular level, um, and I think too that's where you start to get the divine child abuse caricature more recently that I just think people never really went that way historically because that's not the way it was understood, what was happening. But I think if you posit the cross as this disruption between the father and the son, then it does start to look like, um, like you could start to construe it in kind of abusive terms like that.
3: Dr. Tracy had his hand up. We caught it. So here comes the mic.
5: (laughs) Thanks, Josh. Stimulating as always. it seems to me that our American evangelical emphasis on penal substitutionary atonement, <clears throat> which is often pretty much the only way we understand the atonement, is makes it very individual, mm. um, whereas, uh, I assume you're drawing on Irenaeus, recapitulation, very corporate, emphasizes... Um, you know, the, the bigger picture, not the individual, but, but collective. Um, do you think that emphasis that we often have on, on penal substitutionary is maybe part of the reason um, that we focus so much on just individual ethics as opposed to uh, social justice systems, et cetera? What are your thoughts on that?
4: That's a great question. That was a great three or four question. I love it. That's awesome, Steve. I love it. Um, well, yeah, first off, so uh, when it comes to like atonement theory, kind of going what, what has happened at the cross, there are a number of different models. I think I saw one guy outline as many as 12 or something, but, you know, there's probably three to four really prominent historic ones. Um, and I would tend to look at, a, at them as like a both end rather than either or. And so sometimes they get pitted against each other, like I'm for this one or I'm for this one. Uh, but I I, I, I think the cross and the magnitude of what's happening, I tend to look at more like a diamond where you can kind of look at it from multiple angles and see beauty reflected. And um, so one of the ways I would look at it, uh, tend to look at it on that front is, um, so one of the other, we've talked about recapitulation. Uh, We've talked implicitly about penal substitution. I didn't necessarily call it that, but we talked about what is the penalty, like the penal, like the the penalty, and, and is substitution fair? What it means that Christ substitutes. So, um, I actually hold strongly to all three: recapitulation, penal substitution, uh, Christus Victor, uh, some big ones. Um, just in the book, I was trying to address some of our cultural character caricatures. So, I focused a little more explicitly on on that one, since that's where a lot of folks have problems today. But um, my my tendency would be to say, I believe. Uh, I, so, Christus Victor is this idea that emphasizes Christ's victory over the powers that kind of enslave and destroy us. And so there's a sense that we have been made captive by sin. Uh, so let's say uh, penal substitution would emphasize we're the bad guy and we need to be, you know, our, our injustice needs to be dealt with. A uh, Victor would emphasize, dude, we're, we're the good guy, Mary. You know, we're held captive under sin and death and the devil and political powers and spiritual powers of oppression. And so we, we need to be set free, right? And... um. And again, I think that's a both end uh where my take would be uh you know, Christus Victor is the end, penal substitution is the means, and um recapitulation is the framework that for me kind of helps make sense of them, you know, since they're both. So when I say um the end of the means, I, I think of that idea how we are both, I think always we are both uh sinner and sinned against, you know. So I I to hear earlier from the Pro Grace. Movement, I think, is awesome, and she talked about like the intertwining of mother and child. We stepped into foster care uh, some years back, and we adopted our three-year-old son through there. And we kind of stepped in and we said, we actually want to be not just for the child, but also for the mom. And as we stepped in, I think, though, you know, uh, our, our son had endured a lot of uh, drug exposure and alcohol exposure, you know, probably stuff in the womb that was probably going to impact them for life. And you get angry at the mom, and you just go, how could you do this to your child? Right? Like, you're the sinner. He's going to suggest against them. But as we've gotten to know her better over the years and getting to know her story and ha- had the honor of officiating her wedding earlier this uh, this summer, um, building that relationship and getting to know her story, even in like the premarital last year and just going like, got to know more of like what she has endured and been through and the trauma and abuse and neglect and all that she's experienced. And you kind of go from like, how could you do this to your son to like, how are you still alive right now? You know, like, like, how have you survived? And I think... All of us, that's not just her story. I think that's all of our story. We are all that both end. We are all both uh, sinner, those who have perpetuated injustice or idolatry into God's world, and also sinned against those who have experienced the weight of our corrupted, fallen condition. And, and I do think that sometimes, uh, I would say, uh, you know, uh, with the penal substitution, I think there's been some really poor articulations of it. In recent American evangelical theology in particular you know and so I think often there is a maybe a reactive um, a, a reaction against some of the you know in, in some popular preaching and in some articulations of it that um, that uh, and that have become at times fairly individualistic you know and and so i don 't know if i wouldn't necessarily i wouldn't tend to blame um the theology is individualistic, at least I would tend to think of it more as, I think America is individualistic, (laughs) and that's impacted our theology, and then people are reacting against the distorted theology that's come from our individualistic context. And so uh, where I find it helpful is to go, there is more this uh, early church medieval, there would be a stronger emphasis on the corporate dimension as well that I think really helps a lot of the puzzle pieces come into place. Next question,
3: over here.
2: Josh, thank you. Uh, what what do you make of Paul's sort of curious statement in Colossians one twenty four, where he says, I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for mm. the sake of his body, which is the church.
4: Mm. Yeah. So... Uh, I don't know. <laughs> oh, that's a good question. I do think there's some some mystery there, so I don't, I don't have a perfect answer. But I do think that that corporate dimension again, I think helps frame. And so, if we talk about um, union with Christ as the goal, you know, like one of the ways I think of it is, you know, like it's not so much like I, I I come to Jesus and then I go find a church, but rather it's when I come to Jesus, I am in that very act, in that very reality, I am brought into. The Body of Christ brought into the Church, and so union with Jesus means union with his people and his and Jesus's very person, I believe in the power of his spirit and so I think there's a sense that um, man, I believe only christ 's suffering is is fully redemptive or atoning, and you know I think it was finished at the cross it 's all done, so i, I don 't think it 's like oh, Jesus, you missed a few spots so here, I'm Paul. I'll go, you know, finish it off and make up for it. I don't think, I, that, yeah, I don't think by any stretch that that's what he's going after. But I do think there's a sense that um, Christ's atoning work, he takes on the suffering of the world in order to redeem it, right? And then he unites us as his people to himself. And I think part of Christ's ongoing work is he sends us into, and Jesus, I believe, continues to take on the suffering of the world in and through his people, in order to redeem it. And so I think Christ sees himself and the power of, uh, uh, Paul sees himself and the power of Christ's spirit as continuing to redemptively take on suffering, not because he's got some extra magical thing in and of himself, because God's spirit is at work in and through his people, taking on the destruction of the world in order to redeem it. And so on a personal level, to kind of go back, you know, I, I think part of my hope in, um, we have around 30 foster adoptive families at our church. And, and, and just to use that as a little window, you know, I think for a lot of them it's going, dude, because Jesus has entered our destruction redemptively, we want to be able to extend the love of Christ and take on some of the suffering and affliction and things that we see in our world in order to extend the, the radical nature of what Christ has accomplished in making things whole.
5: what uh, How can I use what your your talk and your books um, what is the application uh, How can I go into my context or talk with the people that I'm talking about? What is the overall goal of your of your work
4: yes. Uh, for fifteen dollars, I can.
2: <laughs> it's wonderful. Yeah. By the way, I was very mesmerized by your speaking.
4: Oh, no, thanks. Yeah. No, it's it's great. It's uh, you know, I do think today for this, just knowing this was more pastors, ministry leaders, and all, this was a little more theologically heavied up. You know, um, the book is is much more uh, popularly accessible. I think anyone can pick it up and read it and feel very comfortable. And and the end the end game, I would say, with um. This one has been uh, the 50,000-foot level big picture for folks, I think, is to go, dude, the gospel is not about us going out to find God. It's about God coming out to find us. And finding freedom in that to, um, man, just I, I think there's a freedom of living in and out of the love of God rather than feeling like, you know, We've got to perform. And, and so uh, this one really, it's some of the classic themes of just grace and God's redemptive pursuit, and God being gracious goodness. And um, so um, I'd say that, that one. And then the the first one, Skeletons in God's Closet, is um, the premise there is just going to, I think a lot of us fear that God's hiding some skeletons in the closet, these, these tough topics, where I think the fear is if we were to really open up the closet doors, open up Scripture, and take a closer look, I think the fear is that we'd find God's not truly good or worthy of our trust. Uh, But I found, I think it's because we often have a caricature of what's actually going on in the biblical story. So that book tries to offer some paradigm shifts that have helped me over the years to see these topics arising because of the goodness of God rather than in spite of it or in contradiction to it. And uh, at the end of the day, the biggest goal with that one is just going that we could reclaim a greater confidence that God is good through and through, all the way down, in his very bones. And the subtopics I want to try to take on, the subtitle is uh, uh, The Mercy of Hell, The Surprise of Judgment, The Hope of Holy War. Just gonna, I don't think mercy, surprise, and hope are what most people think about when we think about those topics. But I want to argue, I think they're actually central. And we kind of reframe them back within the biblical story. Um, so uh, so that one's dealing more with kind of some cultural caricatures and objections, trying to help people think through those well. This one's more, I think, trying to reclaim a personal confidence in God's goodness for me and how he comes after me and, and applying, that. And what does that look like to live out of that? But what's common to both of them, I'd say, is two things. One is, uh, one big thing is just trying to confront some of the co- popular caricatures out there. I think there are a lot of distortions of the faith, and, and for a lot of people... Back in the day, it's like you used to have to go to the library and pick up a book. If you wanted to find critiques or objections to Christianity, you would have to go chase it down. You had to go to it, right? But now it's coming to you, like with the internet and just our cultural context today, like uh, friends and family walking away. And just there there are a lot of these massive questions out there. And so um, both of them try and go, hey, the character says it's like this, but the gospel actually says it's like this. And offer some of those paradigm shifts for ultimately how we see God. And so that's... One big goal. The other big goal, I'd say, at the end of the day, it's um, if there's an ultimate heart behind the work, it's the goodness of God. Like just seeing the goodness of God through and through, like through the biblical story and the fullness of our lives, and really being able to reclaim a deep confidence that that is who God is, and this is what the gospel is about, all the way down. Yeah.
3: So, so Josh, I want to end with one little question. It's actually more of a game. All right. This is a little rapid-fire question. All right. So here's, here's how this works. I'm going to throw out some random thing in, in life, like from you know, economics or friendship or whatever. And I'm going to throw that out to you. And if you could, in just a few statements, tell us how uh, our union with Christ helps us reimagine that thing. Perfect. All right? All right. So uh, feel free to pass because they could be weird. <laughs> but we'll start off. I like weird. We'll start simple. Yeah. Our prayer life.
4: Totally. Uh, man, on a theological level, I'd say that our prayer life, it's actually Christ praying in and through us at some level as as our high priest and mediator. Uh, But a big one would be, man, that we don't have to polish up or clean up our prayers. You know, if if God is this God who comes after us relentlessly, then we don't have to kind of clean up the dirtied-up bathroom wall of our heart, so to speak, you know, in order to make it tidy enough for him to see it, Uh, that we can actually bring the fullness of who we are before God, where we're really at. And and uh, yeah, if this is who God is, then we can pray boldly, we can pray firmly, we can pray with full transparency about where we're really at. Marriage. Yeah. Man, some of these corporate things are like, man, if the goal is union with Christ, then I think marriage actually becomes one of the most powerful symbols we have or images, or I'd call it an icon. Like, It's, it's not so much something we just look at, it's something we look through to see who God is. So how I treat my wife, our life together can actually be a reflection of the gospel because it can show union communion with one another in with and through one another and that as these two become one flesh as we're bound in union with one another it has the creative potential to bring life into the world fresh life and creativity and all that and so similar i believe our union with christ man it has the potential like god wants to pour his life out of our union with him into bringing transformation into the world technology technology um I need to shut off my iPhone. (laughs) No, I think technology is good. I I would say, you know, I I think union with Christ, there's this picture where um, God doesn't, you know creation starts in a garden and ends in a city right so god doesn't start things with the end the end already there he starts things with the potential to get to that end and so i think going if union with christ is the goal then vocation is actually very significant it's not like union with christ means i check out of the world i just use my job for a paycheck and then i go worship jesus it's actually i worship jesus through how in my union with him i actually cultivate creation Towards the redemptive city that's coming, like I actually am working to embody the life of Christ in, um, and part of that obviously te- technology is a major aspect. Whether they're talking about a hammer back like in the Stone Age or fire, you know, whether we're talking about digital technology today, that there's something significant. I also think, sorry, this is a little longer, I one left, but I just think of like technology. One of the things today I think is it breeds this interconnectivity, and it seems like there's a really positive side of that and negative side. The positive side is we can be more connected with folks than ever before. We can actually expand and knowing immediately what's going on on the other side of the world and even chatting with a friend via text You know, like in a way that, man, ancient civilizations could have never dreamed of, talking with folks around the world. But there's also this disembodied nature of it. I think that's the danger. You know, it's like union with Christ is an embodied reality that we're designed for. And so technology can kind of almost, I think, hint at the transcendence that God is spirit has of being omnipresent. It's like almost like we're striving for omnipresence in technology to be everywhere, but we can't get there, you know, and we can almost only get there by disembodying ourselves and being just out on, on the internet waves. And I think, union with Christ critiques that by going, dude, actually embodied presence in and with one another is really important.
3: And last one, um, exhausted pastors and leaders who are trying to do some good in the world.
4: Yes, definitely. Uh, for me, I think the freedom to just let go at times, and uh, like with this pursuing God theme, and you with Christ, like uh, one of with with a lot of our pa- so I oversee our local ministries and our international partnerships, and on our local ministries front, I, I you know one of my biggest pieces is trying to. I think there's a temptation as a pastor to use our leaders to get stuff done rather than caring for their heart sometimes, you know, and so I always want to be attentive to just like. Um, I've had a lot of our ministry leaders that I've tried to encourage to just step back, you know, step down Mm -hmm. um, because we don't need to keep doing this just because we've been doing it. We don't need to keep doing it to keep God happy but to let the life of ministry flow from desire rather than duty, Mm -hmm. that makes sense. But I find often I have to preach that same gospel to myself. (laughs) You know, like, I get caught up with the flux of stuff and I'm living out of just this duty to try and please God or get stuff done for him or whatever and just that lie or that facade getting revealed and going union with Christ means Dude, we can take the ministry horse out back and shoot it. You know I mean, we can we can blow up our church or that ministry or whatever it is, and God is still sovereign. He's still reigning, and I think that creates a freedom for me to uh, live out of de- desire rather than duty, like rather than living out of obligation of the things I have to do. being able to step into the spaces of doing it because you know, because I, I want to. You know, like um, it's not so much obligation as this affection and desire for Christ flowing out of our union with Him.
3: Josh, we're really thankful for you. Would you thank him?
4: Thanks, you guys. Um,
3: so the, um, in the back, he's selling the books. These books are great. They're, it's the first book about hell that ever, like, drew me to pray and worship and, and be in tears of adoration. Um, and, um, and also, it's, if, if you just imagine the word dude dropped like once a paragraph, it'll feel like you're having a conversation with him. So with all that said, thank you for being here. I'll close us in prayer, stick around, and hang out with one another. Father, we are, we are grateful. We are grateful that you uh, have um, loved us so profoundly. We thank you for the, the union that we have with Christ, that you have welcomed us into the eternal fellowship of the Trinity, and that we feast with you as adopted children, not merely employees who've been hired. And we just thank you for your presence here among us, you you stepping into the marred picture of creation and bringing healing and life into the sin-stained world and Uh, We just we just thank you for entering in and we just ask that your the sense of your presence with us among us would still be palpable as we uh, continue in just greeting one another and having conversations in this room. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks, everyone.
2: Sunset high and our bodies low. Blood rush in a hazy glow. My hands, your bones. Loose up, we break the scene. One step deep as you fall to me. Hot clap,
3: we skip a beat. Count one.